Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Absolute and Relative Bodhicitta What They Are, Why They Matter, and A Simple Way to Meditate on Them by Eric Weinberg. Eric sums up his talk with a quote from His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama. The moment you have realized bodhicitta, you have become a Mahayana practitioner and are on the path to complete enlightenment. But the moment your bodhicitta degenerates, you fall outside the fold of the bodhisattvas. Without bodhicitta, no matter how advanced you are in other practices, even if you have a direct realization of emptiness or have attained nirvana, Nothing you do becomes the conduct of a bodhisattva or the cause of enlightenment. The 14th Dalai Lama from Illuminating the Path to Enlightenment. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the 11.30 hour at Columbus KTC. Um, my name is Eric Weinberg. I'm a volunteer meditation instructor here. And um, I was asked to give a talk this morning. And when they asked me uh, what it would be about, <laughs> I was in a middle of a really, really profoundly busy um, time in my regular work. And so I went with the wabi-sabi method of uh, picking anything. It's like first thing that comes to mind, even if it's imperfect, it's perfect. And what came to mind was something I'd been thinking about for a while anyway. That's natural. We keep throwing around um, terminology, and it's good that we do. I mean, we've got a lot of things to try to understand. So we put labels on things, and I think sometimes it's good just to contemplate the meaning of the words we use. One of the most important words in this whole lineage of Buddhist teachings is a word called bodhicitta. In terms of uh, direct translation, Bodhi means awakened, and um, Chitta means mind, awakened mind. Well, that's the goal of the whole enterprise, is um, to wake up. And the path in general is pretty simple. Um, the Buddha, I wrote some note here that I want to refer to. The historical Buddha recognized at some point that our normal way of being just was susceptible, created suffering and was susceptible to suffering. And see, this is where I loved his, loved his mind. Um, Rather than just accepting that as a concept or something, you wanted to look into it and understand it. The way that I want to look into and understand his solution 
for suffering, which is bodhicitta this morning. And what he discovered was uh, that fear, greed, and ignorance are the root of suffering. They get referred to a lot as the mental poisons. Out of those, three mental poisons grow five mental poisons, and it goes on and on. But it's important that when you see something in a Buddhist text that refers to mental poisons, poison being that which makes you sick and causes suffering, what's being referred to is fear, greed, and ignorance. And fear and greed arise from ignorance. So what we're talking about really is ignorance. And what we're ignorant of is the way things actually are. It seems like we're born and our first um, bits of consciousness bring us to a place where it's like a holy crap moment, I think. Um, it's a place where all of a sudden you're leaving this warm environment where everything is perfect and you're clearly connected to everything and you're never hungry, you're never cold. If, if the life of your mother is in some kind of normal order, and not terribly chaotic, you know, it's not a lot of loud noises or unpleasantness at all. And all of a sudden you're born and the lights are bright and it's cold and you're hungry because your source of food is literally being cut off. Bang! And so these bits of consciousness start to bubble up to the top. Nice. And the first consciousness is maybe I'm cold. And so you want to be wrapped up and the doctor or your mom or somebody wraps you up and takes care of you. And I'm hungry and you find out that you can nurse and you get fed and so forth. You want connection. You get to be hugged and held and ooed and odd over and it's really nice. That's good. The thing is, is Along with that comes this idea of me, I. I want this, I like this. Ooh, I don't like that. I'm uncomfortable, so I cry and make a lot of unpleasant noise, or I, um, I'm really happy and I smile and I make all the adults, all the giants in the room really happy, and so I want to do more of that, because that feels pretty good. And that sets up a psychological state of where we are going to chase after our preferences, what we want, and avoid what we don't want. And it's training that literally starts right at the womb. So this was no easy thing to realize, really. For Buddha to have insight into this really fundamental process, human process, and identify it as actually the cause of suffering is a profound insight. So what bodhicitta is, is a waking up to the science, what we now know is a scientific reality, that we're all connected, that everything's connected, that 
nothing appears without causes and conditions for it to appear. And as he worked his way back, he looked at the causes and conditions for suffering and he found these three poisons, fear, greed, and ignorance. And the thing we're ignorant of is that we're not these independent, unitary, uh, little um, cells within the big scheme of things. We are actually individual, but individuals that are completely connected one to another. We're connected to the good ones, we're connected to the bad ones. What we judge as good and bad is neither here nor there. Um, those are just our preferences and they're relative and based on our experience. Some people like some things and some people dislike the same thing. We all have experiences of that. There's kinds of music that I love that my parents didn't and vice versa. I can promise you that. Meanwhile, the music is just music. Somebody enjoyed creating it and playing it. And that's a third thing. So Buddha said, all right, I think the other thing that he recognized through his uh, profound long retreat and practice as a yogi was that minds actually aren't fixed. They can't change. There's this thing that scientists call neuroplasticity. And it, they will change depending on what they're exposed to. You know, if you're around a bunch of stuff that causes harm, eventually some of that's going to rub off on you. And um, you'll, you'll become kind of disruptor in your own life and in the lives of others. We all see that all the time. Um, and uh, conversely, when we're around stuff that is aimed at waking up to reality and living with good qualities in reality, like a Sangha, that also has a profound effect on us. When we practice with the aspiration um, to wake up and to see the connection of everyone and make sure that connection is filled with good qualities, kindness and compassion, for instance, well, guess what? Slowly, 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 this pattern that started in our mind from birth begins to change because our minds can change. So when we take refuge, which is what we're about to do, because we always do that at the beginning of teachings, it's a good thing. It's really interesting. The whole teaching, everything I've got to say is in those four lines. We're taking refuge in the teacher, the Buddha. And that's at a couple different levels. There's the teacher like Lama Kathy or Lama Tom, Karmapa, Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, we just put a picture of him up there. There's the, there's the teacher um, who's an exemplar and, and brings some grace and energy to our lives and puts 
it literally shows us that we can put kindness and compassion in this connection that we have with them and we can see and feel for ourselves how incredibly wonderful that is. It's a shock when you finally see it, it was for me. I, just, I always wanted it, but I just was surprised at how good it was. Then we take refuge in the teachings, the Dharma. And the Dharma is those teachings that help us um, do two things. One is to find the antidote for the three poisons for ourselves because nobody can take that medicine for you but you. That's one of the rules of the game. So we have to practice. Well, the Dharma shows us what to practice. And um, it also starts to work on our minds with concepts and ideas of things like this interdependence or interconnection of everything stuff that maybe we didn't really see for ourselves before. Or if we saw it, we just had a glimpse and it was just here and gone, and we didn't know how to contemplate it, to go deep with it. The Dharma shows us how to do that. So Dharma's those, those things and more. And then the Sangha is this idea of us being together on that path together towards awakened mind and how that impacts our minds and how it impacts our understanding of our own life. We'll get to it a little more, but the power of that is that we'll all go to places and do things. We'll all have some work to do after we leave this place. And um, there'll be numerous triggers in our day for whatever our habitual reactions are. And what'll come up are some of those reactions like fear and some of those reactions like greed and certainly plenty of ignorance of just literally not seeing connection at all. <laughs> really being ignorant of the connection that's there. We'll have those triggers. What we're doing here today, what we do it every time that a, the Sangha gets together to hear Dharma, is to remind ourselves that when those triggers happen, we can work with them. They're workable. For me, I mean, for all of us who aren't enlightened yet, um, you know, things happen, fear comes up. But that doesn't mean that that automatic flow into anger has to happen. It could happen that we do a little bodhicitta practice, awakened mind practice. That's what today's about. So that's what's called relative bodhicitta. There are two kinds of bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta and ultimate bodhicitta. Mostly we'll work with relative um, and we'll get, we'll get to those things. But for instance, somebody cut me off in traffic trying to get here. Scary. I was on 680, we were going at the 
kind of speed that you go, you know? Um, and um, I, I literally didn't um, get angry at him. Even though I was frustrated and even though I was afraid, I was able to think, oh, maybe something is happening for them and it's an emergency, or maybe they're just spaced out looking at their cell phone at some text message instead of looking at the road. In any case, may whatever they're worried about turn out good for them. May they stop looking at their cell phone and be safe to get where they want. That part's up to me. How I respond to that triggers up to me. And that's what those, these bodhicitta practices are all about. We just can't do this without practice, though. Me telling you the concept isn't going to help very much. Frankly, if you're anything like me, you'll forget a lot of what I have to say within very short period of time after we leave here. But if I can inspire a little practice and show you a couple of specific ways to practice and you do it for just a few minutes every day, that's what will cause this neuroplasticity to kind of create a new kind of response mechanism for these triggers that come up all the time. All right. So that's my, that's my goal for today. Really is more to share practice with you than my ideas about things. So my title was Absolute and Relative Bodhicitta, what they are, why they are important, and a simple way to meditate on them. I already talked a little bit about what they are and why they're important. So all that's left is um, for me to accomplish all my goals is to meditate on them a little bit together. I suppose I'll have a couple more words to say, but I want to do a couple little practices within the context of this talk, rather than get deep into the weeds of the four of this and the three of that and the six of the other thing because you can look that stuff up in books, and I encourage you to do it because it's helpful. Um, so, in our community, the way we start uh, Dharma talks is uh, to say the refuge prayer together. When you say the refuge prayer with me together, chant it with me, think about, think about the Buddha and what his, he's, he's pulling for us. <laughs> All our teachers are pulling for us. The thing that they want more than anything in life is for us all to be enlightened, for us all to wake up and Feel yourself grounded in that welcoming and in that, in that warm embrace. Realize that you are perfectly capable, that you have all the attributes necessary 
to actually embody the Dharma, to have the, the Dharma imprinted on your mind. And that you're welcome in this community of all of us who are trying to do that together. Taking refuge means that, okay, I'm going to take refuge here in those things rather than the usual stuff that in Buddhism we call samsara. Samsara being, you know, the world of suffering, the cyclical world where we, um, something happens, we react to it, we like it, we don't like it. If we like it, it won't last long. If we don't like it, it won't last long either, but it will seem like it lasts forever and we'll hate it and just create more reactions of suffering. We're taking refuge from that. We're renouncing that. That's what refuge is. We're renouncing the ignorance and taking refuge in wisdom. And then the second part of refuge is bodhicitta, the whole thing. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. That's bodhicitta. The guy who wrote this prayer is uh, named Atisha Deepamkara. Some people call him Jowo. Atisha means big Buddha, Atisha. And he came to Tibet and he was actually a realized being. That's why he could convey the whole thing, the whole, all the volumes and all the wisdom of Dharma in four lines. That's what we're practicing here. So think about that while you chant it. Don't just kind of do it by rote. Buddha taught. Well, he 
recognized we're all starting from a place that's unenlightened and um, this literally his first recommendation was do no harm um, and it, that's a hard thing to do <laughs> do no harm to yourself and others when we really become reflective about the way we live moment to moment day by day well that that's not so easy so immediately he put a, a concept in front of us but also a challenge over the years after he taught this um, this idea of ethics came to mind so um, ethics if, if you look at that refuge prayer you'll see that by the merit of generosity and other good deeds in there in English. What they're saying is, is by working on uh, generosity and other good deeds, that's ethics. That's ethics. May I achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings? Well, Recognizing that we might not just be able to sit at the banks of a river for six years and wake up because his other companions that were sitting by the banks of the river for six years didn't have the same awakening that he did, so it was obvious to him. It wasn't just like a cookbook recipe. There were other things in play, and he was being very thoughtful about how he could help us. And he said, okay, we start with generosity. Generosity meaning um, recognize that we're, we can share everything, that we can try to um, realize our actual connection to others by actually looking at their needs and trying the best we can to participate in meeting those needs. Well, guess what? That helps us get a genuine, direct, experiential experience. Experiential experience, that's ridiculous. Um, experience of this interconnectedness, this interdependent. The second thing was ethics, what he called ethics. And that's what do no harm to yourself or others is, is you got to figure out what the rules for the road are so that you're not harming anybody else and setting up this endless samsaric cycle of cause and effect that simply just brings suffering upon suffering. Okay? So he taught ethics first even before he taught meditation because we need to, the patient is wounded here and we got to stop the bleed. That's how we stop the bleed is we start to think about exactly what we do and what we don't do. We adopt what's wholesome and we drop what's not wholesome, as Kempo Carther used, used to say. So we have these six 
bodhisattva trainings, when you adopt bodhicitta as your goal, when you adopt this goal to achieve perfect enlightenment for the benefit of all, all beings, not just for yourself. Okay, at that point, when you thoroughly adopt that, you're a bodhisattva, that's it. And there are other things that support it, like a vow and that. And I totally encourage anybody to, if they have the opportunity to uh, receive the Bodhisattva vow, to do that. Um, but the Buddha gave us this idea of um, ethics, of doing no harm, and patience was after that. And patience means we're not going to get there right away. We need to be patient with ourselves and others. Recognize that we're a work in progress, that they're a work in progress. Patience is the great antidote for anger, which is, of course, the thing that comes from fear. So we're dealing now without Without having to be enlightened yet, we're dealing directly with some of the three poisons in our mind. So we're going to get at it from where we're at, not from where we're, we want to be. And so he recommended that we work on patience and then joyful diligence. Once, you, once again, joyful diligence is all about you're going to have to work hard to get this. But do it with an attitude of joy, because I guarantee you, you will get there. There's no doubt. And he's there, still there, along with all our teachers pulling for us. And the last two are meditation and wisdom. Wisdom is ultimate bodhicitta. That's, that's the goal. Meditation is the internal way that we get to that goal. So we start with the external what we can all understand and work with right out of the box. And then we learn meditation. Lama Yeshe Jamso came here uh, many years ago. And I can, I'll never forget. And he said, well, the whole path is um, calming down and waking up. And you can't wake up until you calm down. And so, we practice shamatha. Shamatha is called calm abiding meditation. We're doing a shamatha retreat, Lama Tom and I, here next Saturday for anybody that's um, interested. That There you go, that's an advertisement. And um, I encourage everybody to come because shamatha is the direct way that we work with this same thing recognizing the mind in movement, whatever is coming up for it, and empowering our minds to let it go, rather than get captured by the story around it. And if it does get captured, learning how to let go of the story, and so on and so forth, so that we can calm down. And ultimately, when we get these instructions for ultimate, ultimate bodhicitta to wake up. In terms of bodhicitta,
see, I wrote something down to give you a, a concrete description, even though I think I've uh, said it, it bears saying again. So what is bodhicitta? For us beginners, it's establishing the aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. This puts us on the path to see it through to the end. Fearless determination is necessary. We're all going to go through stuff, and that's why we need each other. Entry to the path of a bodhisattva is to spontaneously generate bodhicitta during every moment of our life. In order to generate bodhicitta arising spontaneously, we need to integrate it into every part of our lives. We can do this by identifying mindfulness triggers that remind us of bodhicitta, which is what I was talking about before. The process for training in bodhicitta can be broken into six steps. One, generate a connection with sentient beings, even ourselves. It's really important that we start these practices with ourselves because Really, most of the time we're out of touch. Two, cultivate the four immeasurables. That's what we're about to meditate on together. Three, cultivate the altruistic intention to generate an engaged form of bodhicitta. An engaged form of bodhicitta is actually finding somewhere that the bodhisattva vow is being given and take it and meditate on it with an authentic master. That's engaged bodhicitta. In other words, that helps us put this whole thing into gear. What we can do together is to kind of create the groundwork create the causes and conditions for that to have a powerful impact. Five is to meditate on ultimate bodhicitta. I'm going to fit in a little kind of um, meditation on that as part of this meditation we do. But ultimate bodhicitta is part of um, all the visualization practices we do in the sense that at the end of them we dissolve whatever visualization we've been engaged in, whatever mental activity was involved there, we just dissolve it and rest in absolute stillness, which might only last for a moment. But that absolute stillness is ultimate bodhicitta because it's the space within which everything is contained in, and within which everything arises. Um, Pema Chodron likes to say, you are the sky, everything else is just weather.
well. Most of the time we're concerned with the weather. You know, that's the way our lives go. But through these practices, first of all, in visualization practice, we change the weather and then we let it dissolve like clouds in the sky. And all that's left is this luminous, clear sky that absolutely contains everything that arises. Your mind contains everything that arises for you, right? Where else could it be? Well, when we meditate on ultimate bodhicitta, for us beginners, we go through a practice that comes from an authentic lineage of realizers that helps our mind come to the place where we can have a moment of directly experiencing that. And then sixth, dedicate the merit. Um, in my mind, if we begin with refuge and bodhicitta, which would be like a, a um, mindful uh, recitation of our four-line refuge prayer, doing a practice and then dedicating the merit after we've dissolved and rested at the end of the practice. Um, that's what a complete practice is. That's the form that we can all use all the time. And the truth is, you don't need a big hunk of time. You don't have to think that in order to do a good practice, you need an hour or two or a month in retreat or longer. No, you can, in five minutes, you can recollect yourself. And renounce samsara by taking refuge and engage bodhicitta within that refuge prayer. Practice what you're going to practice and dissolve it and rest for just a moment. Then dedicate the merit. That can be five minutes. The good news of that is you can do that every day. And consistency, if you do it a lot every day or even more than once a day, if you do it a lot, that neuroplasticity thing I was talking about kicks in and it begins to change your mind from the inside, from that um, reactive mental state that you got when you were literally the moment you were born it begins to calm that down. Babies, when they're first born, not calm. Buddha said, calm down. It begins to calm that down and gives us the causes and conditions we need to wake up. And something will come by and in a moment, at some point, we will wake up.
Um, so the importance of these kind of practices that are brief and done often can't be overstated. Um, I call it um, mental hygiene, and I like that because it rhymes with dental hygiene, which is something I do every day. Just like I don't want my teeth to be rotten, I don't want my brain to be rotten. Just like I don't want to breathe bad breath on my friends and enemies or anybody, I don't want to have stinking thinking, you know? And the way to do this is to have some mental hygiene. So let's take a moment and do this brief meditation together and then we'll at the end of it, we'll rest a little and there'll be some time for questions if you have any. So just bring your body into a, um, a relaxed, but good pose for meditation. Just sitting upright. And think to yourself, I'm taking refuge here in my teacher who is rooting for me to wake up. And in the teachings that show me a sure way to wake up. in my fearless determination to engender the qualities that stop the creation of suffering. And then this group of people who are on the path with me, I protect them, they protect me. Begin by recognizing that you have all the same qualities and attributes, all the same capabilities as all the Buddhas that have ever existed. You have a mind and you have a body. You have a life and feel that in your heart, that light that lives in your heart, making your entire mind space luminous.
Now bring to mind an individual or a group you know, or one that you have heard about, and visualize them in the space before you. Reflect on their particular suffering and need. And then recite, you don't have to do this with me, but you'll recognize the prayer. May all my dear sentient beings have happiness in its causes. May all my dear sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. With each breath, imagine giving these beings all your virtue and all your joy in the form of radiant white light pouring out of this Buddha nature that's the center of your being. your ability to help them with whatever you have. Give it freely so they can experience happiness now and create the causes for happiness in the future. With each in-breath, happily draw in all their pain and sorrow and negative karma in the form of black smoke. Just like any darkness that meets light, it dissolves the moment it comes to your heart into nothingness. So nurture the joy you feel from bringing them relief from their suffering. You can even imagine the smoke filling your heart and being burned by that light of your love, of your true nature, of your Buddha nature. Imagine that there is no limit to the love you can offer and no limit to the suffering you can remove and extinguish. And then recite, May all my dear sentient beings never be separated from the bliss that is free from suffering. And imagine 
goes before you completely happy, free, filled with perfect joy. Minds free of ignorance, content, at peace, at home in their world. And take joy in the fact that you were able to help them. And just rest. Let the entire visualization dissolve. And rest in this open space. Brilliant, luminous sky. When the first thought arises, let that be your trigger to recite. May all my dear sentient beings be in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and aversion. and dedicate your merit, all the joy, all the virtue, all the goodness that was ever created or ever will be created to that. Freedom from bias, attachment, aversion, all the poisons that create suffering. That's a meditation that you can do literally in minutes. at any time, in any place. It's true that it's just a visualization and visualizations are just visualizations. Unfortunately, imagining does not make it so. But the practice is not pointless. And you should never ever give in to the mental poison it may say that, and it does, it comes up. It has a powerful effect on our mind to help us cut through our self-cherishing, which is at the root of that whole set of three poisons. That's the real root. Um, and it helps us develop habits 
and how to respond rather than to react. How to enter into this world of virtuosity, literally, and I meet, mean that, like being a virtuoso human. Being virtuous rather than self-centered. It's what it means. In this way, bodhicitta, awakened mind, is strengthened and begins to arise. And you will find if you do this frequently, consistently, you'll see it, bodhicitta, arise spontaneously, as I mentioned before. When things trigger, you know, reaction in your life. And that again is the definition of being a bodhisattva, is when bodhicitta arises spontaneously. So it's a beautiful thing, and I encourage you to practice that little prayer that I broke down into a meditation is called the Four Immeasurables, and you can find text for it pretty much everywhere. It's um, one of the original teachings of Buddhism. Uh, originally it was called the four Brahma Viharas. I love that word Brahma Vihara. Um, but you can find it and I encourage you to. So I'm just going to briefly tell you about this other practice and then open up for questions. The other practice is this. When you're meditating and you rest your mind on your breath, follow your breath all the way in. All the way in. Feel how that oxygen actually gets into nourishing you at a cellular level. Feel it. Feel the vitality of the life and the light that it's bringing into your, in your body, just naturally, with no effort, because breathing requires no effort. It just happens spontaneously. And then as you breathe out, follow it and realize that your breath is just going out and mingling with the atmosphere and what's coming out of you is nourishing trees on the other side of the world. You're connected simply through your breath. And everything's connected to you at a cellular level, simply through your breath. It's science. It is. And spend some time feeling that connection. For me, that has been a powerful meditation um, because it gave me a uh, physical, even scientific way of understanding my connectedness to everything and everybody. And whether I'm feeling good about somebody or not, I mean, I don't feel real good right now about Vladimir Putin, pure confession. No matter 
I'm still connected to Vladimir Putin. My breath is still nourishing trees in Russia right now that are giving off oxygen that he's breathing and keeping him alive. It's true. And vice versa. He might not, I mean, if he knew about me, he probably wouldn't feel great about me either. I mean, that's quite possible. But that's beside the point. So in meditation, trying to um, get our minds to be less self-cherishing and open up to see the reality that interdependence is, is the nature of what we call life. Um, this is a profound thing, and this helps us uh, develop those qualities that bring about um, happiness and freedom and joy and peace, the four Brahma-Viharas, in this world right now. It's the way of bringing about that in our own minds. So um, I will end with that and encourage you to practice as much as possible. Uh, engage with me in mental hygiene. <laughs> and uh, we have about five minutes for some questions, if anybody has any. Or comments. Hello, is this on? Can you hear me? Um, can you, uh, I have, my question is about defining terms, and I'm wondering if ultimate bodhicitta and Buddha nature are synonymous, or is ultimate bodhicitta an aspect of Buddha nature? Can you uh, clarify that? I think they're synonymous. I've read that they're synonymous. Um, so, yeah, I, I think they're the same. And, um, yeah, it's a good question. Either way, if you want to look at it, you know, you could say Buddha nature is, the problem with saying that ultimate bodhicitta is an, as, an attribute of um, Buddha nature is then now you're taking something that is all one, non-dual, and making it into two things. We're, we're creating that division. If you will, it's a, once again, there's, um, imagine a clear blue sky that's luminous, full of light. You can't separate the light from the sky. So you could possibly, if you want to conceptualize it, and I don't know that it's right to conceptualize it, but um, if you wanted to, you could say the inseparable light in the sky is like the inseparable um, bodhicitta in Buddha nature. Thank you. Yeah. I should double check that with Lama Tom. Is that all right? Okay. <laughs> Good morning. 
While you were uh, talking, I was reminded of a story that my first uh, Buddhist teacher told from the life of the Buddha. And it goes something like this. The Buddha had to go to a remote village and one of his disciples went with him. And it was a multi-day trip. And so the, the um, custom was to, when nightfall came, you went to the, the house of a goat herder or yak herder or whatever, and they would you'd stay there, spend the night there. And so the Buddha and his disciple went to one and they uh, made dinner for him. And the Buddha, during the dinner, he's just complimenting the family on what a delicious meal it is. And at the same time, his disciples over there sort of gagging on the food. <laughs> so afterwards, the, the disciples says, the Buddha says, how could you say those things about the food? It was just terrible. And the Buddha says, well, I put the bite of food in my mouth, and I just turned it to ambrosia. So there's the power of the mind. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, it's important that we dedicate the merit always. So I just, why don't you join me in reciting in English the dedication of merit that's on the back of this. By this merit, may all attain omniscience may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth old age sickness and death from the ocean of samsara may i free all beings the courageous manjushri who knows everything as it is samantabhadra who also knows in the same way and all the bodhisattvas that i may follow in their path I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thank you, everybody. See, the whole talk was in that prayer, too. I mean, it's just, it's incredible how powerful and good these practices are. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.